Well, we uh, started two weeks ago this series, You Say You Want a Revolution. It was uh, about 50 years ago, 1968, during a, a revolutionary era in our nation that Paul McCartney and John Lennon from another nation collaborated to write a song that began, You Say You Want a Revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. I still hear the song on the radio. It has great resonance. It seems to be the spirit of our times. We, we long for revolution. Something within us cries out that the world, as we are finding it, is horribly broken and desperately in need of repair. Uh, historians have uh, identified, labeled the modern era as the age of revolution. And at its root, the age of revolution is a, an age of discontent with the way things are all around us as well as within us. As we observed two weeks ago, what we're really desperate for, uh, no earthly revolution can produce. Our needs are deeper by far than can be met by any human leader or any social movement, any political or economic system. Though most in our society reject the idea entirely, our deepest needs, our deepest longings are for the rule of God in our world and in our individual lives and for Jesus Christ to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Lord's Prayer is a revolutionary prayer. That's kind of the the thought that we're beginning this whole thing with. It's a prayer that turns the world upside down. There can be no clearer call to revolution than, for example, when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer, if you'll allow it, for revolutionaries who want to see the kingdom of this world, the kingdoms of this world, give way to the kingdom of God. Many in the Christianized world are familiar at some level with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but for those of us who grew up reciting it frequently, uh, it's our familiarity with it that may be the very thing that prevents us seeing just how radical, even subversive, this prayer really is. So I'm going to ask you to stand one more time with me, and uh, let's read this together. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord God, would you in this hour speak into our lives? Lord, would you um, show us in a new way what this prayer means, what it meant as it came off the lips of the Lord Jesus, what it means for us today, 2,000 years later. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the most fundamental questions about this whole matter of praying uh, is, where do I start? Um, and Jesus answered that question when he said to his disciples, pray then like this. And it's great that we have Jesus teaching us to pray since because he's fully God and fully man, he, he's the only one really ultimately qualified. And my hope in this series is, is not that we would just do a deep dive into some theological concepts, but that maybe we would grow in our own prayer lives and maybe 
you're new to prayer. Maybe it's awkward for you. Um, maybe you didn't grow up praying. And my hope is that somehow you'll, you'll get some insights as we move through this together uh, as to how to verbalize uh, in prayer. And as we do that, as we approach Jesus' teaching here on prayer, we should probably ask ourselves some questions like, is the way that Jesus wants me to pray somehow different from how I actually pray? Uh, would he have me pray in a different way? Or, or how do Jesus' words correct any bad habits that, that I've developed in prayer or preempt any bad habits I may develop? Or, or how is Jesus inviting me to enter into, other, to enter into patterns of prayer that being, bring more glory to God and bring me closer to him. Uh, it may go without saying, but don't miss that Jesus gave his disciples a pattern for prayer. Pray then like this. He didn't say pray this. He said pray then like this. It's a prayer in its own right. But I don't think that Jesus ever intended that it become a ritualized recitation. What Jesus gave his disciples is a pattern, an outline, a skeleton, if you will, that would be fleshed out by Christ followers in every age, in every culture, in every people group on the face of the earth. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, not primarily what to pray. So he gave them, first of all, just for review, he gave them an address which was our Father in heaven. We're going to look at that this morning. And that's followed by three God-centered petitions, or you might prefer the word request, prayer requests, which are, hallowed be your name, first of all, and then secondly, your kingdom come, and then third, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those are in turn followed by three man-centered petitions or requests, First of all, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or more accurately, from the evil one. This morning, our, our goal is to consider the, the surprising and even shocking way that Jesus taught his disciples to address God in prayer and then to examine what, in fact, it means to pray that God's name be hallowed. So first of all, then, Jesus invites us to address God as our Father. And you might ask, well, how, how is that surprising? How is that shocking? Uh, and you might ask that for the simple reason that, that, that to speak to God as our Heavenly Father is familiar to us. And we have a tendency to take that title for granted. But stay with me here, and I think you'll see what a radical thing it is that we have this freedom to express God, uh, to, to address God in, in this way. At the time of Jesus, and the time that Jesus walked the earth, the word Father was never, ever used to address God in prayer. Uh, in fact, I read that it was apparently never used in that manner in all of the Old Testament or in any of the writings of the rabbis that, that we have available to us until about the 10th century A.D., and, and then only rarely. So 
It's not that God's name is never, it's not that God is never referred to as Father. It's that he is never, ever addressed as Father in prayer. And yet, and and just don't miss this contrast, in every prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the New Testament, with only one exception, Jesus always addressed God as his Father. And we need to understand what a radical departure from tradition that was. No one else prayed like that. No one dared. Uh, By expressing such a deep intimacy between himself and God, Jesus was identifying himself as the unique Son of God. If you'll recall, it was this that became the central reason for the constant conflict that Jesus had with the Jewish religious establishment. And in fact, from their perspective, it was the thing that finally led them to put Jesus to death. So check this out. Jesus, the Son of God, the third person, or the second person of the the triune God, is the only one who possesses the inherent right in himself to address God as his Father. And yet, and yet, he goes ahead and instructs his disciples to do so also. As we saw two weeks ago, as well as last summer in our sprint through Genesis 1 through 11, our right as members of Adam's race to come into God's presence with boldness ended quite abruptly back in the garden. You remember that? It's recorded in Genesis 3. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he wrote that we human beings are not by nature children of God. And Paul said we are by nature children of wrath, children deserving of wrath. On one occasion in John chapter 8, Jesus called the Pharisees the children of the devil. So by what right do we presume to call God our Father? Just this, just this, that through our faith in Jesus Christ, God adopts us as his very own children. With regard to Jesus, John wrote in his gospel, he that is Jesus came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, but when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Now, combine those two thoughts. We have been reborn by the Spirit of God. God God worked some kind of transformation in us, which is referred to as a rebirth of the Spirit or a rebirth of a birth that comes from God, and he adopted us. as his very own children. Redemption, rescue, 
when God chose to adopt you, he looked out over the whole world and said, I choose you. I choose you. Think with me about the implications of that. What, what is our adoption as the children of God mean? First of all, it means that the, the humanistic notion of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is a sham. We are all God's creation, but we are not all his children. Only those who have received Christ receive the adoption. And secondly, Romans 8.29 tells us that God's intention has always been that Jesus be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and that is, he's the, he's the first and most honored of the children of God. And that means that uh, when by faith you were included in God's family, God became your father and Jesus became your brother. And there is no favoritism in the family of God. Your heavenly father loves and values you no less than he does his son, Jesus. Would you just let that sink in for a moment? Your heavenly Father loves, values, treasures you no less than he does his son, Jesus. And nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Third, because we're God's children, God has sent his, his spirit into our hearts, Paul wrote, as the distinguishing mark of our membership in the family. It's a, as if the Holy Spirit's presence is our ID card. We're, we're members of God's family. Romans 8, 15 to 16, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. It's because the spirit of God lives in us that we experience an intimacy with God. We're, we're, we're called into an intimacy with God so deep that we're able to say, Abba, Father, which is the, the Aramaic equivalent of Daddy. Papa, Abba. And fourth, Paul says that if we're children of God, then we are his heirs, Romans 8, 17. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And one day in his kingdom, we will receive the fullness of our inheritance. In the meantime, we're to honor our heavenly father and to love our brothers and sisters. The Lord's Prayer challenges our individualism. There is no I in prayer, at least not in this one. The, the first person singular pronoun is entirely absent from this prayer. When we pray our Father, our Father, we are renewed in the realization of our family relationship as the children of the Heavenly Father. He is our Father. And that's why, in part, I've chosen every Sunday as you leave to say, love each other. Love each other. We are the family of God. 
children of the Heavenly Father. You know, it's entirely possible that some of us here this morning struggle with thinking of God as our Heavenly Father because of the way that you were treated by your Father on earth, your earthly Father. Your earthly Father may have wounded you, hurt you deeply in some way. It almost goes without saying that every one of us has some kind of father wound. Some are deeper than others. Last year on Father's Day, a young woman said to me, I hate Father's Day. That startled me a little bit. I, I asked her, why? And she responded with just four words as, as her eyes filled with tears. Because of my dad. And then she walked off. I later learned that she had been abused by her father and then abandoned by him. And it it made my heart cry for her, for others like her. But here's what I want to say to you if that describes your experience. The answer to uh, abuse or abandonment uh, by the one man in all the world that you should have expected would love you purely is not to abandon a relationship with your heavenly father who actually does. Instead, you need to understand that our father, which art in heaven, is in in an entirely different category than our fathers who aren't in heaven. He's completely other. He, he is in a class all of his own. He's, he's the perfect father. He is the original. He's the archetype. He is the one who defines fatherhood. He's the one who sets the ultimate standard for the rest of us very imperfect fathers. Theologian J.I. Packer wrote, Our father is in heaven, which means that he is free from all the limitations, inadequacies, and flaws that are found in earthly fathers. And that his fatherhood, like all his other relationships, is from every standpoint absolutely ideal, perfect, glorious. Dwell on the fact that there is no better father, no parent more deeply committed to his children's welfare, or more wise and generous in promoting it than God the Creator. He loves you. He loves you perfectly. He loves you no less than he loves his son Jesus. Our Father. Next he says, in heaven. In heaven. I once heard someone say that the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. The vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it, which means that drab prayers come from drab thoughts of God. Drab thoughts of God make for drab, uninspiring, uninspired prayer. Maybe you'll agree with me that the the mark of great prayers is that they express a great awareness of a great God. As we've seen, Jesus directs us first to approach God on the basis that we are his children. Through faith in Christ, he is our father. We're members of his family. He lives in us by his spirit. And then Jesus wants to link 
the radical thought of his fatherhood with the thought that our Father is in heaven. That is that he is the eternal God who, who is sovereign, who is self-existent, different and distinct from everything and everyone else. He is large and in charge. To think of our Father in heaven brings to mind all the attributes of his greatness, that he is infinite, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he is all-loving, all-wise, all-present. And I could go on. The thought of our Father residing in heaven reminds us how big and how great he really is. When Marcy and I lived in California, we bought a (laughs) fixer-upper. It was our first home, and one of my many many, many projects was to tear out a fence that was falling down in the front yard. And that meant that there were boards laying down with nails sticking out of them. As I dismantled what was left of that fence, there were nails that fell on the ground. And a little kid from down the street, probably five or six years old, was intrigued with what I was doing, and he asked if he could come and help me. And I thought, I'd better check with this kid's parents. And so I did. Talked with his parents to inform them of his interest in what I was doing. They gave their okay for him to hang out with me. And I, I let him do some small jobs. I kept an eye on him so that he didn't get hurt. Um, but one day I had to tell him for, for his own good to stop doing something that he was doing. I, I honestly don't recall what it was, but I, here's what I remember about the moment, that he was offended. <laughs> and he expressed in uh, his, his offense in his five- or six-year-old best adult voice, puffing out his chest, my dad is as big as a mountain. That's what he wanted me to know. It was hilarious. Your heavenly father is bigger than a mountain. Bigger than all the mountains. Your heavenly Father created them. Created everything else in all of the universe. Paul described God to his protege, Timothy. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Wow. Wow. To the Christ followers in Ephesus, he wrote that he, that is God, raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now notice this two-word phrase, far above. Say that with me, far above. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Also regarding Jesus, Paul wrote, He who descended, that is from heaven, is the one who also ascended, what? Far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. But the same Paul, speaking to the Epicureans on Mars Hill in Athens, after describing how great God is, he added this, he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul says that 
God is unapproachable and unknowable, far above all the heavenly beings, far above every name, far above the heavens, and yet not far from each one of us. Isaiah the prophet captured this perhaps best in chapter Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is the God who is far above everything and everyone, but not far, not far from each one of us. When I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, we used to sing this little song. This was during the space race, so it was appropriate. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Jesus will come again, and though we don't know when, the countdown's getting lower every day. Somewhere in outer space, where, where is that? Is heaven in outer space somewhere? Is it beyond outer space or is it right here? Perhaps we should think of heaven existing on a different plane rather than a different place. The heavenly places, the New Testament calls it, the spiritual realm In 2006, my wife and daughter and I traveled to Prince Edward Island. It was my daughter's high school graduation trip because that was where Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote Anne with an E, Anne of Green Gables. And and we went to the Green Gables farm, and we stayed in a little inn called Kindred Spirits Inn. And on a trail through a forest adjacent to the farm that Anne with an E called the Haunted Wood, I came across a plaque with this quote, and I wrote it down because it expressed so well the notion that heaven is far, but not far. Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote, It has always seemed to me ever since early childhood, amid all the commonplaces of life, I was very near to a kingdom of ideal beauty. Between it and me hung only a thin veil. I could never quite draw it aside, but sometimes a wind fluttered it, and I caught a glimpse of the enchanting realms beyond, only a glimpse. But those glimpses have always made life worthwhile. Love that. Love that. He is the God who is far but not far. He is our Father in heaven. Next, Jesus said, pray in this way, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And here's the first and most fundamental request of the entire prayer. Everything else hangs on this. I love what J.I. Packer had to say about our prayer lives. Were we left to ourselves, any praying we did would both start and end with ourselves, for our natural self-centeredness knows no bounds. Amen to that. Indeed, much pagan praying of this kind goes on among supposedly Christian people. You ever thought of your prayers as pagan? (laughs) What does it mean to hallow 
God's name. We don't use that word hallow much anymore. Well, in order to understand that, we have to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of God's name. Because in the Bible, the, a person's name stood for the character and the conduct of the person whose name it was. That is their reputation. Uh, some of us, maybe most of us, at some point in our growing up, our parents or someone else said to us, think about your reputation. Think about maintaining your good name. In the same way, God's name is essentially shorthand for God himself, as he is, as he has revealed himself to us. You and I don't get the privilege of naming God. He names himself. And in fact, his covenant name, Yahweh, means literally, I am that I am. Hallowing sounds like Halloween. What does it mean to hallow God's reputation, God's good name? Well, the words hallow and holy come from the same root. To hallow something or someone is simply to treat them as holy. God's name is already holy. We don't make it holy. We treat it as holy. It's separate from, it's exalted over every other name. Every name that can be named. Hallowing God's name is not merely making a factual declaration that his name is holy, although some of our modern translations translate hallowed be your name with simple declaration your name is holy. That's not what this text is saying. To pray that God's name be hallowed is to pray that his name be treated as holy, that it receives the honor and the glory that it is due and to receive it from our individual lives, from the church, and even from the world at large, that God's name be hallowed is a prayer that his name would receive its due in our discipleship, our walk with God, our prayer, in our preaching, in our witnessing, in our working, in our daily lives and relationships, in our sexuality, in our, our financial stewardship, in every part of our lives, in all of history and all of the world and throughout all of eternity. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are declaring that that our ultimate concern is not that we would receive honor and glory and that our lives would would be marked by comfort and convenience, but that God would be glorified and that our lives as we live them would put his glory on display for the world to see. I was thinking about this on the way over here this morning and and the thought occurred to me that hallowing is personal work. You remember that that when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, what we refer to as the triumphal entry, a week before he was crucified, that the people were were throwing down palm branches in his way, laying down their clothing. It It created a riot. In fact, the high priest came and said to Jesus, tell your people to be quiet. You're disturbing the peace. It wasn't just a small little event. It it disrupted the entire city. And and Jesus said to Caiaphas, the high priest, "I, I tell you that if these are quiet, the rocks and the stones themselves will cry out. 
Rocks and stones can cry out, apparently. They do that in places like Narnia. <laughs> Remember the Old Testament refers to the trees of the field clapping their hands, metaphorically. But rocks and stones can't hallow God's name. Trees can't hallow God's name. Only you and I can do that. It's personal work. It also occurred to me this week as I reflected on this that there's a direct connection from this matter of hallowing God's name to the third of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel through Moses. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How many of you are like me that when you were growing up, taking the Lord's name in vain was to swear, right? Anybody? Um, occasionally it would slip out of my mouth, you know? Oh, God. Or, right? And my mom would look at me and she'd say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, young man. And we should never speak the name of Jesus Christ or God loosely or casually. That's certainly one way to think about it, but it's not the only way, and it's not even the best way. In the Old Testament, the Lord commanded Moses to tell the high priest, Aaron, to speak this blessing over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And the Lord added these words, So shall they put the name, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In the New Testament times and still today, believers are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 in what we refer to as the Great Commission. But it's not literally in the name, it's into the name. We're baptized into the name. So whether you were a, a Jew in the Old Testament or you're a Christian in the New Testament age, you bear the name of God, you bear the name of Jesus. You've received it to yourself. To take the name of the Lord is to make a conscious decision to be publicly identified with him. So that to take the name of the Lord in vain or in an empty manner it is to go through the motions, but then to neglect to live a life that honors and hallows the name of our Heavenly Father. If you're going to take the name, live the life. Finally, to pray that God's name be hallowed is an evangelistic prayer. You know, our, our great desire is hopefully that, that increasing numbers of men and women, boys and girls, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have their sin, sins forgiven, have their lives transformed and made new. And whenever that happens, God's name receives honor and glory. But it's also true that the more people in the world who come to know Christ, 
the more people there are who are intentionally choosing to honor God in the whole of their lives and then to communicate the message to others about God's Son, Jesus, and the salvation that's available through him. John Piper is a name you might recognize. He's uh, one of the major voices in evangelicalism today, former senior pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. He's famous for this saying. He's probably more famous for this saying than than for any of his other books in total. He wrote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Father, hallowed be your name in the lives of those around us who need to know Jesus. Our Father, Abba, Daddy, in heaven, large and in charge, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, In our lives, in our homes, in our families, our marriages, our workplaces, in our vehicles, in our schools, in our thoughts, in our values, in our priorities, the goals of our lives. Lord, may your name, through it all, be hallowed, treated as holy, because holy you are. Holy you are. Thank you, Father, that you looked out across the whole world and chose us, that you rescued us and you redeemed us by the blood of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.